This is John Halsman, and welcome to our new section in our newsletter, our newspaper for the world, our little local newspaper for the world as we think of it, The Culture. And once every other week, we are going to look at something cultural that is fundamental to the Western world or the world in general and why it matters and why it's not talked about enough. And today, to start with, I thought I'd pick on something near and dear to my heart, which is the writing of Ernest Hemingway which is shamefully underrated. Uh, Hemingway comes in fashion, in waves. Um, he's in, he's out. But the profound importance of Hemingway, I think, is lost. And so I wanted to start our culture section of our little local newspaper to the world, The Culture, with comments on Ernest Hemingway and why he matters. Early on in Hemingway's career, sometime when he was in Paris in the 1920s, Somebody asked him what he was trying to do with his writing, what he was setting out to do. And in typical fashion, only an American would talk like this. Hemingway talks in sports analogies, and he talked about having a boxing match with Tolstoy and knocking him out. And the reporter said, why? And Hemingway said, because that would be for the heavyweight championship of the world, meaning Tolstoy was the greatest writer who ever lived. And I think that's true. I think Tolstoy, and I've read every word that Tolstoy ever wrote. It's a thing I'm very proud of. I think Tolstoy never wrote a bad story, not a bad novel, not a bad short story, probably not a bad letter to his grocer. And Hemingway, in a forthright American way, uh, which is both full of American ambition and full of American naivete, said, the reason I'm writing is to be the best writer in the history of the world. Full stop. That I'm writing to be the best, that I'm writing to be remembered, that I'm writing because writing matters and I want to matter. So if I'm the best at this, I will. Again, only Americans talk like this. In all the years of living abroad, all of Hemingway's fascinations with Paris and with Italy and with Spain above all and with Cuba and with going on safari in Africa, with all these things, Hemingway remains quintessentially American, big-hearted, full of flaws, boyish, naive, stout, brave, um, seemingly simplistic but complicated. I think of him as the quintessential American of the 20th century. But again, he said very clearly early on, as Americans do and no one else does, I'm in this to be the best. And to do that, Hemingway tried to change the way people wrote. It wasn't just the subject matter, or even primarily the subject matter, amazing as it is, what Hemingway was writing about was language after the 19th century, full of frills where people were paid by the word. When you read Dickens, who has some of the greatest themes in history, but is incredibly wordy and difficult to read in the modern terms, the reason it's difficult to read is because of Hemingway. Hemingway conditioned us that this wasn't real writing, that putting six adjectives down where one would do, that spare, muscular, aggressive language, gerunds, ing verbs that move, language that is muscular, language that says a lot more by saying less, paring things down to their essence, leaving people to draw their own conclusions from their writing rather than frills and curlicues and arabesques and Byzantine writing, that this was the way to really write. That being paid by the word is not a good way to judge whether a story or a theme matters, but to get to the essence through simplicity. Not that it is simple what you're doing or simple-minded, but that simplicity would actually highlight emotional and intellectual complexity. That paradox Hemingway understood, and indeed his style of writing he almost invented. And this spare, simple, muscular language 
is what I encourage our interns to do. When I meet an intern with real talent who writes well, but wants to write better, I always say, read some of Hemingway's short stories. Understand simple, muscular, profound language. So Hemingway's claim to being the greatest is this change in how we view the English language itself. What good writing actually amounts to. Not Dickens, not curlicues and arabesques, but instead the simple Hemingway-esque language of the modern era. And more than anything else, he should be remembered for that and that alone, uh, which certainly informs my writing um, as I try to live up to that. And though Hemingway never did live up to Tolstoy, how could you live up to someone to mix our sports metaphors who pitched a perfect game? He certainly came close. And his main came, claim to fame is this fundamental use of language, his changing language to be spare, muscular, and profound in its simplicity. A modernist approach, and Hemingway in many ways invented modernism, and uh, that deserves an awful lot more time than it's given. Um, if we look at specific Hemingway works, though, I think, I think you can begin to see the greatness that lies behind the man beyond the obvious comments he made to writing in the English language. I think his first major breakthrough was Fiesta, also known as The Sun Also Rises, Rises, published by Scribner's in 1926. And one of the things Hemingway really got right in his, his writing was his politics. Hemingway came down with the notion, having seen both world wars, that World War I was a bad war and World War II was a good war. And his writing amplified this fact, which is now, I think, historically backed up. And Fiesta is the first of his two great World War I novels. And what's great about Fiesta, which tells the story of the doomed love affair of Jake Barnes and Lady Brett Ashley, is that it's about the lost generation, those who survived World War I and what it did to them without ever mentioning the war. Talk about control. This is a man just starting his career in his 20s who has, is born to absolute control emotionally of the story. In the modern era, you could imagine people weeping on TV in some sort of reality TV show about what the war did to him. Every, here, everything is done through restraint. Jake Barnes is castrated, is wounded physically by the war and is castrated and is unable to have a normal relationship in the same way that Lady Brett Ashley becomes nigh on a nymphomaniac, is highly promiscuous because her lover, the great love of her life, dies in the war. So both Jake Barnes and Lady Brett Ashley, who are the two love interests, the doomed, obviously impossible love between them, are messed up psychologically and sexually by World War I without World War I ever being mentioned. They passingly discuss the war, but never in any detail is the war mentioned. Rather, Fiesta is important because of what's not mentioned. Everyone in the, in, the, in the entire thing, from the alcoholics to those who are bankrupt, to those who go mad, to those who kill themselves, to those who are needlessly promiscuous, to those like Jake who withdraw within, all of it, all of it, all of it stems from a war who's so awful that like Voldemort, its name is not mentioned. Its name is simply not mentioned. It's so awful. And it makes what happened in World War I profoundly moving. That all these bright, brilliant people of the lost generation, as Hemingway called them, are doomed. And they're doomed precisely by a war who's so horrible that its name isn't mentioned. And the lost love of Jake and Lady Brett is merely the foreground of this other bigger tragedy. And in theory, the story moves as the expatriates from Britain and America move from Paris 
to the festival of San Fermin to watch the running of the bulls in Pamplona and the bullfights. But frankly, this carnage is a poor second to what they've already seen in the trenches of World War I. And all these beautiful, bright people are doomed, utterly emotionally doomed by what happened to them, what, by st what, what stunted their growth and what they can never regain. And this is where Fiesta is wonderful, all by a war whose name is barely mentioned in the book. In essence, it's all about the aftermath. And this makes Fiesta my favorite anti-war um, uh, novel ever written. And in fact, anybody trying to start a war would do worse than to read Hemingway's two World War I stories. First Fiesta in 1926, and then even more famously, A Farewell to Arms, published by Scribner's again in 1929. And Farewell to Arms is almost a, you know, a bookend of Fiesta. Here, the war and the damage it's done is, is more overt. You have the doomed love affair again of Frederick Henry um, and the Brit Catherine Barclay, who's a nurse. Frederick Henry's uh, serving in an ambulance corps fighting in World War I on the Italian front, as Hemingway himself did. And the scene that, that stands out in this book, undoubtedly, is the retreat from Caporetto, the great Italian disaster of World War I, when in the chaos of, of the, and, and death that comes out of this, Frederick Henry just wants to survive and make it back. And again, without any real anti-war polemics, Hemingway masterfully is in great control Again, in his late 20s, early 30s, in total control of his art. He was born fully formed. He never got better, as some people did. He, the Beatles, for a while, in the mid-60s, every album was better than the one before, from 1964 to about 1968. This is not true of Hemingway. He's born fully formed. And in fact, I think Fiesta, the first great novel, 1926, is his best. And Farewell to Arms certainly gets honorable mention, probably the bronze medal, is in 1929. So already, right out of the gate, he's written his first and his third best novel, right out of the gate. And uh, so he's fully formed in entire control. Really, it's only with the dissipation, with becoming famous, with becoming corrupted by his own fame, that Hemingway begins to go downhill. And this happens a little bit later along. Uh, but he's, he's born fully formed and ready to write, and his genius is immediate. Um, Farewell to Arms, um, and again, this is, this, this is informed by my experience. I live in Italy, and if you go to northern Italy to Caporetto, there's an ossuary there. The skulls of many of the survivals of the battle, tens of thousands of skulls piled in pyramids um, in these monasteries in the Italian mountains, the Italian Alps. Everyone who wants to start a war should go see the ossuary at Caporetto to understand the human cost that comes from calamity and war. And again, without overbeating the drum, without the hysteria of the modern world, Hemingway's modernism triumphs over where we are now in his restraint. I think when I read about the retreat from Caporetto, of the ossuary there, of the thousands upon thousands of skulls and bodies piled up in pyramids, kept in these crypts in the Italian Alps as a symbol of the utter futility of war. The war began with the assassination of Francis Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and if you had to explain why the war happened, almost no one could give you a straight answer. It isn't a simple question to answer, and yet it ought to be. 
as George Catlett Marshall said in World War II, if I can't explain in one paragraph to every grieving family and every grieving widow why an American has died, we shouldn't be doing whatever we're doing. And for World War I, we certainly fail that test. There are complicated reasons for it, but they don't pass the test for the carnage that ensued and for the losses that were endured. And Farewell to Arms makes this clear. In the epic retreat from Caporetto and Fred Henry, just wanting to get back to Catherine Barclay, and the, the, and surviving against all the odds and ending up together only for her to die along with their baby at the end of the story. And so the universe, the unforgiving universe has left Fred Henry, Frederick Henry, desolate, having survived the war, but utterly alone and having done so despite all these fearful odds. And frankly, you could do no better than Fiesta and Farewell to Arms for why World War I was such a calamity. The suicide of Europe as the dominant power that it had been up to there. And they are eminently readable, modernist, approachable, heartbreaking, and well worth the read in both cases. Ironically, if anything, Hemingway should have spent more time even than he did writing short stories. It was seen at the time, and even now in literary circles, that the novel is what serious writers should do, just like is what I do. You should write books and not articles, that articles are light and fluffy, and that books are what you should devote your talent and your genius to, even if you do foreign policy, such as I do. And I utterly refute this. I've written 14 books and 1,100 articles, and good as I think some of my books are, and I, as great as I think To Dare More Boldly is, which I'm humbled to have written, uh, give me the articles every time. And I think Hemingway was like this. His short stories are, are superior, like Chekhov, the great Russian short story writer, who also isn't as given his due, is seen as a great short story writer, but not quite the equal of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or even Turgenev. And I think this is absolutely untrue um, and absolutely unfair. Um, in both cases, they should be given, or Chekhov should be given more due and placed in that final pantheon along with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But the short story is seen as not quite up to scratch. And this is frustrating for Hemingway because he was far better than his frenemy, uh, his friend and great rival F. Scott Fitzgerald in short stories. Hemingway's, he wrote more of them and they're better and they stand the test of time in a way Fitzgerald's really don't. But Fitzgerald had written The Great, the great Gatsby, which Hemingway feared might become to be seen as the great American novel. That mythical creature, the white whale, the perfect American book. And indeed, Gatsby probably is the great American novel. And so Hemingway was determined with his competitive juices flowing for his friend and rival to come up with something as good. And his two efforts in the 20s Fiesta and Farewell to Arms certainly are in that league um, and deserve to be there. But if, if anything, the short stories are what really mark Hemingway out for greatness. And I think my favorite of the many are The Snows of Kilimanjaro in 1936, written for Esquire magazine. And the reason this is so great is goes back again to Chekhov, the idea that a whole world can be conjured in just a couple pages. I remember reading Hemingway and being three pages from the end and thinking to myself, he'll never pull it off. He can never get to the end. It's so deep, so profound, so interesting that there's no way he can tie up all the loose ends in three pages. And like a magic trick, Hemingway does, given the discipline of his writing for the famous indiscipline of his life, his writing at its best was disciplined. It's only when he lost this 
through the girls and the drinking and the believing the caricature, through becoming like Jim Morrison, a car wreck and losing sight of what brought him to the dance, his immense talents in the first place. That's the tragedy of Hemingway. But at his height in Snows of Kilimanjaro, even in the supposedly fallow 1930s for Hemingway, um, is an amazing work. Um, in it, you see Harry, who's a, a writer out on safari, sound familiar, again, Hemingway's writing about his favorite topic himself, dying of gangrene on safari with his girlfriend at the time, his mistress, Helen. And he has this wonderful stream of consciousness moment where for several pages in his fever, he tells Helen as straight as he can what men think of women and why you love certain women and don't love others. And it's one of the most brutal, most honest bits of writing. Like all great writing, it has the ability to be honest and unblinkingly so. And all great writing has that. And in Snows of Kilimanjaro, if women want to know how men really think about them, you cannot do better than the Harry's comments while he's feverish and dying of gangrene out in the African safari to Helen. That is indeed brutally how men think. And uh, for that alone, I think it's well worth a read. But the short stories encompass universes of ideas about fathers and sons, redemption, belonging, one's place in the world. And all of that is profound and timeless. But with Hemingway's beautiful, laconic use of language is ideally suited to the short story. I would argue there's no better short story writer in history than Hemingway. And this is a very underlooked thing because people are snobby about novels as opposed to short stories and shouldn't be. Read the Hemingway short stories and you'll realize that if not quite up to Tolstoy, he's certainly in that greatest of great writers pantheon and Snows of Kilimanjaro is a great way to do that. After this though, Hemingway pivots politically brilliantly from saying, if in Fiesta and Farewell to Arms, the point is to find personal happiness in a world that's politically gone mad. In, in, in For Whom the Bell Tolls in 1940, he pivots and realizes that there are things in the world worth fighting for beyond yourself. That connecting is not just connecting at the personal level, which he's explained so well in both Fiesta and Farewell to Arms, but is also at the societal or indeed even global level. No man is an island, quoting John Donne, to begin the wonderful work of Robert Jordan, the American expatriate in Spain, determined to blow up a bridge to help the Spanish forces of the left, versus Franco um, in a war that in theory isn't his at all. Along the way, he falls in love with Maria. And this is important because this is the continuity. This is where the theoretical becomes flesh. At the end of the story, Maria, who's been raped horribly by Franco troops and has had a miserable time, is in love with Jordan and is pregnant with his child. That good will go on after Jordan, but it's his turn to be a man, to take responsibility, and to do his best to destroy fascism, which would be an evil, as Churchill put it, the dark night upon mankind itself, and to blow up that bridge to stop the Francoists from advancing. Jordan, of course, succeeds in doing this, but dies in the effort that sometimes everything must be given to be part of this. And this is an entire pivot politically from where Hemingway was over World War I. But this pivot, I think historically, has been realized as justified. Whereas World War I was an avoidable calamity, World War II most assuredly was not. 
And here Hemingway, again, like all great writers, rides with the tide of history, sees what's coming next, is just ahead in Spain of the conflagration. Spain is a dress rehearsal for World War II, and Hemingway is riding ahead that no man is an island, and in dying, Robert Jordan does that most important of things, he connects in a way that in Fiesta, everyone is left broken and unconnected. With Robert Jordan in 1940, everyone is connected. And then, ideally, Hemingway had a final act when he was seen as to have shot his bolt, having done some truly awful writing in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, and not knowing he's done awful writing. And that I don't understand. I certainly do. When my writing's awful, I know it immediately. Not knowing himself anymore, having become a caricature, a cartoon of what Hemingway really was, a sensitive, gifted man trying to connect with the society he lived in, he comes up with The Old Man in the Sea in 1951, where he again is writing about himself, Santiago, the Cuban fisherman who catches the giant marlin and is trying to bring that one last big fish to port. He's exhausted. He's nowhere near as good as he used to be as a fisherman. Use the word writer and Hemingway for Santiago and fisherman. And everything is clear. The descriptive power is back. The control is back in the writing and the naturalism is back. And Hemingway brings that fish into port along with Santiago only to see that the giant fish has been eaten along the way by other fish and that he has failed. But he has failed nobly. And this brings me to the last point about why Hemingway is great and why he matters. Because Hemingway does something beneath the caricature of the gun-toting, whiskey-drinking, fun-loving, womanizing, boxing guy who, who's the hellraiser in every fight. That's not a Hemingway. That's a caricature that was made of him for a man of action, but also a man of passion and a man of introspection who try to answer a fundamental question of the 20th century that still plagues us today. In our era, in our modern times, what is it to be a man? Because always in Hemingway, men are the key protagonists. Women are important, but secondary characters. Hemingway wants to know what it's like to be a man. And Hemingway answers this in a fundamental way by defining the quality that he likes most, which is bravery. And he defines this as grace under pressure. If you remember the great line from uh, The Lion in Winter, the great movie of the late 1960s, when Richard the Lionheart is arguing with his brilliant father, Henry II, about winning and losing battles and that losing Henry II's scoff said doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you fall. And Richard immediately disagrees and says, that's not true. Sometimes how you fall is all there is. And that's Hemingway's universe. You may succeed politically. You may fail politically. You may succeed emotionally. You may fail emotionally. But what matters is how you fall, how you do it, how you live. The success and the failure comes second. Being a man is about showing grace under pressure at the key moments of your life, having the resilience the bravery to go on, to do it with grace, to do your best, to do it with grace, and then leave the rest in the lap of the gods. That fundamental question, what it is to be a man in our modern era, has gone unanswered for too long. And that, above all, is why Hemingway matters. I hope you enjoyed this. This is the first of our The Culture series for John's newsletter, our local newspaper to the world. Uh, for those of you who like this, please do subscribe as we broaden out and try to fill in the rest of the beguiling world. And to do that, we need to talk about social issues, 
as my compatriot Juan L. Ryder is going to do, uh, who's going to be writing for us, as well as me talking about cultural issues as we go. If you like this, please do subscribe, as so many of you have. It's emboldened us to try to make this our local newspaper to the world. And to do that, please do subscribe. And for those of you who have, please do give. We're asking $70 a year for our newspaper to matter. But this is not the kind of story you're going to get anymore. And we think why Hemingway matters, matters. Please do give. Thanks very much, and I hope you enjoyed this.